Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. And as you are finding your way there, let me begin by stating uh, my main point this morning. Uh, Here it is, right at the outset. What we believe about the future dictates what we do in the present. I'll repeat it. What we believe about the future dictates, determines what we do in the present. Some time back, I was reading an article, and in this article... I read of a planned project to construct a a dam in Maine. I think it was Maine. And the purpose of this dam was to uh, prepare for a hydroelectric station, a hydroelectric plant. And so they needed to construct this dam. And obviously, wherever you construct a dam, you are constructing a lake. Problem was, there was a small town where this lake was going to be. And so they informed the occupants, and I'm sure there was a bit of a fight, but once the fight was over and they saw the writing on the wall, I'm sure they were compensated financially, but they knew it was time to move. And it was time to make preparations to move. Once that decision was made, and once they knew for certain the dam was going up, the lake was coming, uh, the town fell apart. They didn't bother fixing the potholes in the roads anymore. They didn't bother fixing the lights. No one mowed their lawn. No one took care of their homes. Why? Because what they believed about the future uh, determined how they lived in the present. There was absolutely absolutely no point. There was no point anymore investing time, energy, money, effort in upkeeping a town that was doomed, destined to be covered with water. Again, let me hear, let you hear my point. It is simply this. What we believe about the future dictates, determines what we do in the present. Here's an interesting question. What do you know for certain is going to happen in the future? Now think carefully, friend. What do you know for certain is going to happen in the future? You know very little. You don't know what's going to happen the rest of this day. There is very little you know concerning your future. You know you're going to die unless the Lord should return. Uh, You know there is an eternal destiny, heaven and hell. Uh, You know that there is another world coming. There are certain things you know for certain, and beyond that, we know absolutely nothing. It is what we know for certain concerning the future that should actually determine how we live at present. That is Paul's point in Romans chapter 8, picking it up in verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice, firstly, a phrase at the end of verse 19. Sons of God. Notice, secondly, a phrase at the end of verse 21. Children of God. Notice thirdly a phrase toward the end, not quite at the end of verse 23. Adoption as sons. Clearly, clearly, Paul is continuing with a theme that he introduced in verses 14 through 17. We saw it last Sunday. I referred to it as the climax of the Bible. This truth, this reality, that God has adopted sinners, rebellious sinners, spiteful, hateful sinners into his family. And he has made them sons of God. He has made them children of God. We saw, we enumerated the many blessings, privileges of adoption into God's family as we find them in verses 14 through 17. Number one. We reflect our Father's likeness. We see that in verse 14. Number two, we enjoy our Father's favor. That's in verse 15. Thirdly, we receive our Father's attention. That too is in verse 15. Fourthly, we perceive our Father's delight. That takes us into verse 16. Fifthly, We obtain our Father's inheritance, verse 17. And lastly, we experience our Father's discipline. That too is in verse 17. Paul has not changed his focus. He has not altered his subject matter. He sticks with the subject of the sons of God, the children of God, this adoption as sons. What he is now doing in these verses, however, is addressing an issue, a potential issue that arises out of what he has just said in verses 14 through 17. In particular, what he has said right at the end of the 17th verse, provided, provided we suffer with him, that is with Christ. In order that we may also be glorified with Christ. Yes, you have received the adoption of sons. 
Yes, you've been brought into this tremendous privilege, this tremendous standing that is in God's family. Yes, all these privileges are yours. The final one, yes, we experience the Father's discipline. We suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, Paul is thinking to himself, look, I know how the mind works. And I know exactly the road you're going to go down. This is going to lead you, this mention of suffering, this mention of discomfort, as it is coupled with being a son of God, it is going to lead you to ask an obvious question. The obvious question is this, is it worth it? That's, that's all he's asking. He knows, oh, he knows how we think. He's like us. Is it worth it? We're going to suffer with him. Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering right here, right now. Glory right there in the future. Is it worth it? That's the question. Is the future glory worth the present suffering? Is the future joy worth the present sorrow? Is the future reward worth the present sacrifice? Is the future pleasure worth the present pain? Is the future crown worth the present cross? Is it worth it. And all he is doing in verses 18 through 25 is answering with a resounding, you betcha. Yes. Look at what he says in verse 18. For I consider. And so I stop. Just stop right there. Paul is saying, look, God has given us a mental faculty known as reasoning. And so I consider, I use my power of reasoning. And I consider, and in particular, I consider two things. I weigh two things. I compare two things. Over here, I've just mentioned it, present suffering. What I will go through as a Christian. What I will go through for identifying with Christ. What I will go through as a son of God in the present. I put it there, I consider at it, I look intently at it. Over here, what I put is this, future glory. This inheritance of which I've spoken, all that awaits me in glory, and I use my faculty of reasoning to compare the two, and I arrive at a reasonable conclusion. What's his conclusion? Well, notice what it isn't. He does not compare the two and conclude, look, I think future glory is a wee bit better than present suffering. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, look, I look at future glory and I determine, I conclude it is a hundred times better than present suffering. That's not what he says either. Nor does he say, look, I, I look at future glory, all that's going to come. Yes, at that point, yet future, when I, when I inherit all that God has predetermined for me as a child of God. He does not conclude it is a thousand times better 
or 10,000 times better, or even a million times better. What is his conclusion? I cannot even compare the two. Isn't that what he says? You're all staring at me. Isn't that what he says in the text? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. There's not even, not even point in any doing it. They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Give me some specifics. I need a little more, Paul. I need a little convincing. And that's what he does now starting in verse 19 through to where we end in verse 25. And, and, and how he proceeds is simply this. He, he, he brings us into the realm of creation and gives us three facts. Gives us a big picture. Forces us to, to stand up and perceive history from beginning to end and look at creation and then he applies it. And his point is simply this. The point I made right at the outset. What we believe about the future determines, it dictates how we live, what we do at present. So what are his three points? Point number one, verse 20. He speaks of creation's past, note the tense, past subjection. 20th verse, he writes, for the creation was subjected, past subjection. For the creation was subjected to what? To futility, vanity, not willingly. Why? But because of him, it's God, who subjected it. And so our minds turn immediately back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. We go all the way back to the creation narrative. And we discover that God spoke all things into existence. And having done so, he declared that it was very good. What does he see? He sees beauty. He sees harmony. He sees symmetry. He sees the entire created order functioning precisely as he designed it, maximizing the revelation of his glory. You know the story. Adam and Eve blew it. Adam and Eve sinned. Now notice carefully. Not only did God punish Adam and Eve in their persons, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He punished them in their possessions. What did they possess? Creation, the world. He punished them in their persons, and he punished them in their possessions. He brought both upon, he brought what upon both? Death and Decay. I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone here. Is it the second law of thermal dynamics? I think it is, which is simply what? That all things are running down. Why? Because God has subjected the entire created order to what? Futility. It is past subjection. Now, notice the second point he makes. Future liberation begin not at the start of verse 21. I have no idea. I really wish I could take issue with them sometimes. The chapters and the verses, why they put them where they do. But it breaks the thought. Go back to the last couple of words at the end of verse 20. In hope. 
That's where we need to begin. And so, yes, past subjection, God did subject the entire created order to futility, to vanity. All things are running down. But he did so why? Not as an end in itself, but in hope. He had a plan, always had a plan, that the creation itself, the heavens and earth, the cosmos, will be set free. That is future liberation. Set free from what? From its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This past Tuesday, April 22nd, we celebrated Earth Day. One or two of us celebrated. (laughs) I could name the one or two, but I won't. Should I? I won't. Celebrated Earth Day. I, I have no problem with Earth Day. It kind of snuck up on me out of nowhere. All of a sudden I realized there was such a thing as Earth Day. But apparently it started back in the 70s, maybe everything started in the 70s, didn't it? 70s, 80s. It's been around for a few decades now. And it's a good idea, I suppose. I, I have no problem with it. It is simply to mark a day on our calendar to draw attention, attention to environmental protection. That's great. We shouldn't... We shouldn't pay lip service to that. We are stewards of creation. Stewardship is a calling. Stewardship is a responsibility. We should carefully weigh economic interests and environmental interests and protection. It gets downright silly when we deify creation and it becomes rather nonsensical. But this idea of stewardship is a biblical principle and something that perhaps we don't give enough attention to. But anyway, there you have it. Earth Day on Tuesday. Let me tell you, there is an Earth Day coming. There is an earth day coming, future liberation. Follow along again as I read it at the end of verse 20, in hope. Yes, all creation was subjected to futility, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom. When is this going to happen? You see, it's associated with another freedom or liberation. It is the glory of the children of God. So when we are actually glorified in the sight of God, that day yet future, it it will have cosmic influences. It will mark an entire renovation of the world, the cosmos, the heavens, and the earth. I've said it a few times. It's worth repeating. Think on it, please, if it catches you off guard, all right? Because it's one of those evangelical myths that just won't go away. You're not going to spend eternity in heaven. Heaven is not our destiny, folks. Heaven is a temporary place we're going to go if I die. My body and soul, they're separated, right? The body goes into the grave, decays. My soul goes to, we can call it heaven, right? Goes to the presence of the Lord. They'll be reunited. My destiny is not heaven. My destiny is an entire recreated, renovated, redeemed cosmos. A new heavens and a new earth. I know what you're thinking. You think, doesn't Peter say, though, this is all going to be destroyed like fire? Read the text carefully. As in the days of Noah... As God destroyed the earth with a flood, so too the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. The destruction of the world by, by that flood was not annihilation, was it? It was renovation. 
The same thing with the coming fire. It is not annihilation. It is renovation. It is not the annihilation of substance. It will be the complete alteration of form. Something unimaginable. I guess we catch a glimpse of it back in Eden. But I even think it's going to far eclipse Eden. What God has in store for his creation. He's not going to simply disregard it all one day. They will enough of that. Annihilate it. Boom. And we're all going to just float around from cloud to cloud in heaven. That is an evangelical myth that just won't go away. I wish it would. No, it's a new heavens and it is a new earth. Future liberation. Us glorified, creation glorified, and us inhabiting the cosmos with Christ as our head, fulfilling the original creation mandate given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. That mandate has not ended. It is now fulfilled in the last Adam and his bride, the church. Oh, there is something tremendous coming, folks. There is something unbelievably significant coming. This future liberation that will entail the entire created order, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here's his third point into verse 21, into verses 19 and 22. Present anticipation. And so point number one, remember, there's chronology here. We're thinking in terms of tenses, time tenses. Past subjection, I get it. Future liberation, I get it too. Here's his third point, present anticipation. And he describes it in two ways. He describes it firstly back in verse 19 as follows. For the creation, here we go, eager longing. The creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God, us, Christians, the entire created order is waiting for what God is going to do to us. Why? Because creation, he personifies it here, knows that its eternal significance for creation itself. The phrase Paul uses there, eager longing, is interesting. It's the idea of waiting for something with your neck outstretched, right? So if you watch a parade coming down the street, and there's a big crowd there, and a couple of six-foot-four fellas standing in front of you, and you quite can't see what's coming down next in the parade, what do you do? You stretch out your neck and try to get a glimpse. That's the meaning of the word here. That creation, says J.B. Phillips, he puts it beautifully as follows, that all of creation is on tiptoes. To see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. That is present anticipation, eager longing. He describes it in a second fashion. Now jump ahead to verse 22. Painful groaning. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why does he use this illustration? Why does he simply say, we know that the whole creation has been groaning until now? Why does he make this comparison? It's intentional. Now, I want you to understand creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is very intentional. He wants us to think of a woman giving birth. 
And he wants us to think in terms of what an, an, an unpleasant experience that is in and of itself. He wants us to get that there is pain. There is anguish, there is discomfort, there is suffering associated with that. But upon the birth of that baby boy, upon the birth of that baby girl, all that pain and suffering evaporates, dissipates, and is immediately replaced with what? Joy. That's the illustration. That's the point. That creation's groaning at present will give way to something. It, creation is suffering birth pangs right now. Going through the process of giving birth. And but when the sons of God are glorified. And with them God glorifies all of creation. Oh, the decay is gone. The death is gone. Corruption is gone. Sin is gone. And all of creation is perfected by God. Three points. Past subjection. Future liberation. And present anticipation. And then in the remainder of the text, verses 23 through 25, Paul speaks of our response. It's threefold. Here we go. Number one. We groan inwardly. Okay, we get it. Past subjection, future liberation, present anticipation. We understand what's going to go on with the cosmos here. How does this affect us, this great panoramic view of God's plan for creation? Verse 23, we groan inwardly. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits. We've only got the first fruits, folks. The first fruits of the Spirit Grown inwardly. The first fruits of the Spirit. When did we receive those? We received them. You go back to verses 15 and 16. When God sent the Spirit of adoption as sons into our hearts, into our lives, by which we cry, Abba, Father. Those were the first fruits. That was the down payment. That was the pledge that there is something far greater coming. There is something far more momentous coming. And we understand, let me use a couple of terms now, very important for us to grasp these. We understand that we as Christians, we get it, we grasp this fact that salvation has been inaugurated. That's all that has been done. You need to grasp this, believer. Salvation has been inaugurated. It has not yet been consummated. You've only been given the first fruits. You, you're only, you are only partly saved. Understand that, please. The best is yet to come. And as we look with anticipation and we understand what is coming and what God has in store for us, we groan inwardly. As we long for it, we yearn for it. Secondly, Paul says, we wait eagerly. Look again at verse 23, right from the outset. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Stop right there. I thought I was already adopted. 
What does he mean I'm waiting for my adoption? I thought I was already redeemed. What does he mean I'm waiting for the redemption of my body? Let me repeat it. You and I, as Christians, we are only partly saved. Oh, we do ourselves all sorts of damage. And all you have to do is turn on the television and listen to half the guys who are preach, so-called preaching on there. It's your best life now. No, it is not. Your best life is coming. You are only partly saved. You have received the first fruits. Therefore, positionally in Christ, you are saved. Positionally in Christ, you are adopted. Positionally in Christ, you are redeemed. But you have not yet entered into all that awaits for you as a child of God. Oh, you think of redemption. We sang it earlier. Actually, we quoted it earlier as we read out of the book of Hebrews. And there the author of the epistle to Hebrews makes reference to that historical redemption. That when Christ died upon Calvary's cross, he redeemed us. Well, that was a moment in time. The ransom was paid. That is historical redemption. But in the New Testament, not only do we read of historical redemption, we read of personal redemption, whereby Christ's ransom is actually applied to us. It is applied to us in two phases. It is applied to us in the first phase, present and partial. In Him, we have a redemption from our sins. It's ours, present and partial. But we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise for the day of redemption. When it will be full and final. And in the meantime, we find ourselves waiting eagerly. Our third response is this. We hope patiently. Verse 24. For in this hope, we were saved, partly saved. You were saved to hope. That's what you were saved to. You were saved to hope. Now hope, that is, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what is, for what is seized? You see, don't see it yet. But if we hope for what we do not see, this glorious day coming, we wait for it with patience. We wait eagerly. We groan inwardly. We wait eagerly. And we hope Patiently, patiently. Again, it is not some wishful thinking. It is a confident expectation that as the children of God, God himself will fulfill all that he has promised us, all that he has covenanted to give us, that that inheritance of which we spoke last week, remember that threefold inheritance, we hope in the glory of God. We will inherit God himself. We know the second part of our inheritance is the entire world, the cosmos, renovated. It's ours. And we know the third part of our inheritance is a glorified body and soul. We wait eagerly for it. We hope patiently for it. An illustration I've given some time ago, it's worth repeating now, is of, the, is of the father who approaches the baseball diamond, his son's little league game. Do you remember this one? He approaches his son's little league game, and there he stands, the little guy in left field. And his father's late, and he comes up to the fence, and he says, son, what's the score? And his son turns to him quickly, 20-0, we're losing. What are you going to say, dad? 20-0, we're losing. And his father, the only thing he can think of is, oh, son, don't give up hope. 
And his son turns to him and says, why would we give up hope? We haven't even batted yet. (laughs) Oh, you laugh. That is how most of us think of hope. It is wishful thinking, pie in the sky. Oh boy, I wish, I kind of hope. Vanity filled. That is not biblical hope. Because biblical hope is fixed on the promises of God. Biblical hope is fixed on an all-powerful God. Yes, creation, past subjection. Oh, yes, creation, future liberation. When we are glorified by God himself, body and soul, the inheritance that will be ours. Oh, and how that impacts us at present. What we believe about the future dictates what we do in the present. Really. Really. I submit to you that what I have just described for you is the only thing you know for certain is going to happen in the future. And yet, sadly, but truly, dare I say it, it has little impact on the way you live at present. Dare I say it, little impact on the way I live at present. What we believe about the future, this is Paul's point, determines how we live at present. Because you see, if we grasp all that and we go back, we return to verse 17 at the end where he speaks of suffering. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, it leads to that question, is it worth it? And Paul's answer is, of course it's worth it. For I consider, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There are many lessons in these verses. Let me suggest three. The first is this. Firstly, uh, in these verses, we find a tremendous challenge. It would be remiss of me if I don't point you down this road. In these verses, we do find a tremendous challenge. You look, for example, of what Paul says in the 23rd verse. At the end, it's a phrase we've heard so many times now. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is a tremendous challenge. Because I read that, it leads me to ask what? Do I really wait eagerly for it? Is that coming redemption? Is that coming day of glory? Is that approaching day when I enter into my reward and the full inheritance which is set aside for me? Is that hope really what shapes the way I live now? Could I really, can I, I mean, come on now. Can I really describe myself day in, day out as I take stock of my life and what's really important to me, what occupies my time and to what I give my attention? Can I really, I mean, really now. Describe myself as one who waits eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I mean, that, that, is, a, that, is, that is a tremendous challenge, isn't it? Let me, let, me, let me reword it. Let me put it to you in slightly different terms. If my desire for glory, if I am not waiting eagerly for adoption as sons right now, What really makes me think I actually have any interest in it? 
Isn't that, I mean, come on, isn't that a legitimate question? If it's not what I am seeking after, if I'm not seeking right now the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if this is not what shapes me, forms me, drives me, shapes my outlook in life, if I'm not actually living for that, what makes me think, despite what I might say and plea and claim, what actually makes me think for one moment I have any interest in it? Surely that is the epitome of hypocrisy, isn't it? Let, let me get even more specific here. Very more specific. If I really hunger and thirst for this, as Paul depicts this hunger and thirst in this text, then what does that mean for the present? That if I say, well, yeah, that's what, I e- that's what I'm eagerly longing for, looking for. What does that look like in ter- now in terms of my approach to God's word? You see, if that's what I'm living for, how would that affect now my approach to God's word? And shaping my life according to God's word. Saturating my life according to God's word. If that's really what I'm eagerly longing for, living for, hoping for, that's what I'm looking for. How would that shape now my approach to the people of God? This this is making sense, I hope. Serving them. Ministering to them. Loving them. If, let me go even further. If my hope is fixed on that day, and yes, I I, I get what Paul is saying, I wait eagerly, I hope patiently, and yes, I groan inwardly. If that's really true, what would that look like now in terms of my commitment to the church of God? How dare I neglect the people of God, pay lip service to the word of God, show up and worship with the people of God, I don't know, maybe 63% of the year, it's not too bad, and yet claim... That I am desiring first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is that not the height and the epitome of inconsistency and hypocrisy? Oh, this is a tremendous challenge, folks. Tremendous challenge. What we believe about the future determines how we live at present. Our dreams, our aspirations, our desires. Our joys, our sorrows, our outlooks, our perspectives, our ideologies. It shapes, it determines, it dictates. Oh, I was thinking of this a couple of weeks ago. You know, it just, things you just miss in Scripture. This is one I've missed for years. An exhortation of the Lord Jesus in Luke 17. Remember Lot's wife. Okay. So what? Remember Lot's wife. Well, maybe I'm just speaking to one person this morning, and one's enough. Hear me, please. Remember Lot's wife. She left Sodom, but she never left Sodom. She left, but she never left. What was she doing? She was looking back. And there was disbelief in that looking. There was disobedience in that looking. There was downright ingratitude in that looking. And there was worldliness in that looking. But her look betrayed. Her feet were going. She thought their feet were going in one direction. But her look betrayed where her heart was. Oh, I pray no one here is self-deceived this day. Self-deceived. Oh, my friends, if we get the gospel, what it is to be redeemed in Christ Jesus. If we get what is in store for us and get that the present suffering, the present life is not worth 
comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here is a challenge. It will determine how you live. Do not pretend otherwise. It will determine your commitment to the word of God. It will determine your commitment to the people of God. And it will determine your commitment to the worship, the church of God. The second lesson is this. You look into these verses, we find a fabulous remedy. Fabulous remedy. Right there at the outset of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He does not arrive at this conclusion apart from his consideration. It is the duty of every Christian, the responsibility of every believer to give time to considering, to analyze things, think through things, pour over things, meditate upon things. Oh, preach these things to yourself and arrive at reasonable conclusions. Oh, the duty of consideration. And this consideration in particular, the hope of glory. It will cure vanity. Are you in the grip of entertainment? Dare say some of you probably are. The grip of entertainment. Your life revolves around movies, dramas, TV shows, sitcoms, video games. Oh, a a sight of future glory will cure you. It cures melancholy. Are you in the grip of despair? The homes in disarray. Marriage, difficulty upon difficulty. Circumstances that are beyond your control. Yes, that is suffering. Yes, that is painful. But oh, a sight of future glory will cure your melancholy. It will cure your apathy. Are you in the grip of indifference? What's the point? What's the point? I'm giving up. I just don't, I just don't see you know, the point of making effort anymore or trying anymore. Oh, you need to consider future glory. A sight of future glory will cure your apathy. It will cure sensuality. Are you in the grip of lust? That habit. You've given up trying. Lust like a drug that you have to feed upon regularly repeatedly, a struggle that has gone on for years. Oh, consider, please, a sight of future glory will cure your sensuality, will cure your gluttony, my gluttony. Are we in the grip of greed, living for the present? Whatever it is we think earthly, material-wise, that will satisfy us, bring us ultimate joy. Whatever it is we have placed all our hopes in, earthly wise, some good things, some bad things. And yet we've invested everything emotionally into this. If only I had this, if only I had more of this, if only my situation was like this, my circumstances like that. And this is greed at the root of it all. Oh, a sight of future glory would cure it. Lastly, a sight of future glory cures negativity. Negativity. I stated it in the Sunday school. I will state it again. If you are a middle-class American, whatever that is, if you are a middle-class American, you are living right now better than 99.4% of people who ever walked the face of the earth. 
know what that means? Can I say it? You know me well enough I can say it? Stop your belly aching. That's what that means. That's what that means. Stop your belly aching. We are in the grips of negativity at times. Oh, but a sight of future glory will cure us of this ailment. Thirdly, third lesson in these verses, I see a marvelous, this is the main point, a marvelous encouragement. 25th verse, for example. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Hope, our hope as Christians is fixed on the return of Christ. The resurrection from the dead. The full and final deliverance from sin. And the renovation of the cosmos. Hope makes this future certainty a present reality. And this is a light that penetrates the shadow. This is a light that is immune to every illness. Every threat. Every grief. Every worry, every loss, every challenge. Here it is. I conclude from C.S. Lewis himself. Hear this. God is going to make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. Pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Oh, I consider, I consider, and here is what I conclude, that present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that you might take the preaching of your word and bless it to us. Uh, We ask our Father that you might challenge those who need challenging, that you might truly disturb the comfortable among us. Undoubtedly, some are too comfortable. And we pray that you would shake them up. We pray that you would disturb them. We pray that you would bring your word to bear upon them, convicting of sin and of their need to repent, confess their sin, repent, and turn to you. We pray, too, that you would impress upon them that you are a forgiving father, that you are a God who abounds in compassion, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not turn away the penitent sinner who comes to you in poverty of spirit, but will receive all who approach you, dare to come nigh to you, and do so through the cross of Christ. And we pray, our Father, that your people gathered here might find great encouragement in your word this day. We suffer from a multitude of problems. We face many different difficulties. And at times, the way is extremely difficult. At times, the path is very daunting. We pray that your light might shine upon us as it shines forth in your word. And you will show us this glory that is in store for us. And may we orient our lives accordingly. We ask it for your glory. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. We seek it from you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.